today we're going to talk about uh, the independent uh, Christian churches, the Restoration Movement. We're not going to talk about the necessarily the entire movement, but rather the, the branch of the movement that we've been both associated with. And uh, describe then, maybe, or, or attempt to describe, I think that's the, what, what's giving rise to the conversation, is that we're in a kind of um, clearly a transition, a crisis. I don't know how, how you might describe it, but there is just a kind of uh, loss of a, a clear direction and perhaps a crisis in identity, in, uh, at least in the independent Christian churches, uh, that is marked then by uh, the various branches and then the way these branches are in some way folding into one another and becoming indistinguishable. Uh, so let's let's talk about a little bit. Uh, John, describe for us uh, what in the independent churches a little bit then. Uh, how would we talk about the streams of understanding there? Mm-hmm. So according to the a new book that's been published recently, The Global History of the Stone Campbell Movement, and it was a joint effort. There's a chapter on the independent Christian churches, and you have three streams identifiable, or at least that were identifiable in the past century. So that's the foundationalist, restorationist, or what is known as the Christian Restoration Association. The Bible college is associated with that group or like-minded Bible colleges and professors and churches that are very hardline, you might say, uh, theologically conservative. I'm not for sure if that's the right label for them. They're certainly a type of fundamentalist, uh, and not necessarily in a negative way, but they're holding to a certain definition of inspiration of scripture and several other of the fundamentals of the faith that come out in that period of the 1920s and uh, so on. Then there's another stream that gained a lot of traction towards the latter half of the last century, that being the neo-evangelicals who become just evangelicals and really spearheaded by uh, James DeForest Murch. As I understand it, he's kind of a key figure in this. Yes. Uh, That Murch then would have at one time perhaps been identified uh, with the foundational, you know, restorationists and even was called fundamentalist, but he yes. rejected that term, if I remember right. Uh, and in fact, his that uh, as as it's pictured, uh, he kind of evolves from a uh, what I would call the reactionary. And I'm saying this not in a pejorative sort of. Well, it is pejorative, but I feel like I can be pejorative. Because it's the actually the part of the branch of the movement that I've been most associated with, the longest association, and perhaps then, uh, uh, so I'm going to call them the reactionaries. You call them what you want. But anyway, go ahead with Merch there. Yes, Merch uh, quits or is asked to leave from Standard Publishing 
And right after he leaves Standard Publishing, which at that time was much more affiliated or in line with the ideas of the Christian Restoration Association, Murch ends up being the editor of the National Association of Evangelicals in this uh, publication, United Evangelical Action. And so at this point in the history of the Stone Campbell movement, there aren't necessarily clear and absolute lines between uh, the disciples of Christ and the independent Christian churches. But Merch and others are allowing these lines to become more and more defined. So you have him not being willing to associate with what we might call the hardline foundationalists. And maybe fundamentalism isn't the right word because they don't hold to the more Calvinistic tenets of a fundamentalism. And that's the problem here, even with the term evangelicalism. Uh, you know, what, and, and you're going to have debates about what that means, but mm-hmm. uh, I think an understanding of evangelicalism uh, is that it has been associated with a Calvinistic or uh, Reformed understanding. And I think that, that whether that, whether they are in some way disassociating themselves from that isn't that then the case that in the modern streams of the movement, and that's, you know, we almost need to describe these three streams, not because that's necessarily still the case, but that you can see the three, in other words, those who openly were identifying with a more ecumenical and an evangelical understanding to my mind, have in a sense won the day mm-hmm. uh, over and against uh, what I would call the, you know, the reactionaries or the what some would have termed fundamentalists, the Christian Restoration Association, the Bible College movement as a whole, or mm-hmm. at least a good section of it. Uh, that in in a sense, the evangelicals. And in the full-blown sense of that term with the megachurches, that in terms of power structures, in terms of institutionalism, uh, that that is the uh, reigning orientation then uh, within the independent churches. Is that? Yeah, see, I think so. I think you can almost trace that in the career of one man, Donald McGavran, who at one time was interested in missions. Uh, He was meeting with people at Great Lakes Bible College, what was then called Great Lakes Bible College in Michigan. By 1970, he's written a book called Understanding Church Growth, which applies some of the ideas he had for the mission field to simply growing churches in the United States. This gives rise to the megachurches, especially in the independent Christian churches. And at that same time, he moves his Institute for Church Growth and Missions from the Northwest Christian University, which is in Eugene, Oregon to this day, to Fuller University in Pasadena, California. So strongly affiliating himself and his ideas with the evangelical movement. And maybe maybe we need to, there's a lot happening here. And of course, uh, McGavern, uh, is himself a missionary, if I remember right, uh, in India. Uh, that uh, missions, of course, has always played a key role in in the, just the, especially in the independent branch of the movement. That we've always, you know, e- evangelical may have been a kind of uh, 
attractive word because of the notion of evangelism. And so Donald McGavern, I think, is a key shaping force and is presenting a clear philosophy, first of all, for missions on the missionary field. And this philosophy has come to reign. Now, when you say something like this, uh, I'm never sure that people who adhere to this understanding are necessarily attuned. Uh, you know, I'm sure that most megachurch preachers have no notion how they got there or why they think the way they think. Uh, or that even in our Bible colleges, that as these institutions give themselves over to a kind of pragmatic understanding that Donald McGavern is working out in some detail and, you know, in uh, and recommending, uh, this is, in a sense, maybe just uh, feeding into American utilitarianism and pragmatism. But certainly, uh, whether people know his name or not, he seems to have some way won the day. Yeah, and I think you can trace our largest and first megachurch directly back to Donald McGavern's teaching and thinking, and that would be Bob Russell's church in uh, Kentucky. So right after McGavern's book, Russell's putting these ideas into practice and ends up with a church. Of, I think it's, they're up to like 30-something thousand a day, but they were 18,000 very quick even back in the 1980s and right, 90s. Right. And so Bob Russell openly embraces Donald McGavern and, and has become the model, I suppose, for uh, the mega churches not just in the restoration movement, but when we say this, uh, give us that. Give us the t- statistic on mega churches in the restoration movement. Yeah, so, out of the global history, uh, quote: By the early 21st century, four percent of all mega churches were affiliated with the Christian churches and churches of Christ more than any other denomination in the United States. So the 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 uh, restoration movement. And the independent branch of the restoration movement, am I saying this right, mm-hmm. uh, it has more megachurches than anyone else. Yes. Yeah, you don't really see the megachurch movement as much in the churches of Christ, the acapella churches of Christ, or the disciples of Christ. And so this uh, Donald McGavern, of course, he came, my, my family and I, we were in Japan, and this is to understand how Don McGavern's understanding would work out. You know, he seems to be recommending just a kind of, uh, the idea is, well, do whatever it takes to grow the church. But, of course, what that would mean in a place like Japan is leave. <laughs> because you're probably not going to grow. Uh, in other words, if, the pragmatism or numbers is the driving force in what you're doing. Uh, you're going to abandon certain mission fields, and this is precisely then what proceeded to happen. Japan was one of, and at one time it, it was a fairly productive mission field in just strictly quantifiable terms, but of course, very quickly uh, that it becomes one of the most difficult 
I think it was always difficult, but there was a time when, in which it was more fruitful. So, what uh, it, it, to my mind, this is the pernicious influence that we're co combating. It, it is the sort of combination of uh, a Donald McGavern church growth philosophy that freely flows with American utilitarianism, pragmatism, and consumerism uh, to produce then the model of the megachurch uh, as kind of the goal that is just pervasive in at least the independent churches. And I don't mean in, in just the big churches, that every little church you go to, uh, the megachurch has become the model. Is that your perception? Yeah, or at least the goal. So uh, even at smaller congregations and smaller communities, instead of thinking in terms of how do we best serve the community, how do we grow spiritually, how do we grow deeper in our knowledge of the word, the emphasis is still on how do we grow numerically. And how you do, in other words, the two things are going to be in direct conflict because how you grow numerically uh, in fact, is not through uh, a scholarly engagement with the Old and the New Testament or a deep understanding of that, but a kind of facile, you know, uh, light treatment. Uh, that, that It is a kind of gospel light. And I don't mean to, uh, I'm, I, I'm not saying that there isn't some, uh, serious things that happen, but the whole uh, trend, I think, in preaching as you hear it uh, is then toward a kind of spectacle uh, and a production. So the music and everything then is professionalized and uh, bent upon then delivering a product. It's very American. But it's so, it's so interesting that this has arisen then in the pragmatics of a missionary trying to deal with then uh, how, do you get, how do you gain converts in hard mission fields mm -hmm. like India. Uh, tell me what's wrong with Donald McGavern in your understanding. Oh, I, I uh, can't be, claim to be any kind of expert on what he's doing. My problem is simply that what you've already stated, once you make the emphasis or the goal church growth numerically. I think we set everything else aside that we're supposed to be doing as church. So uh, the emphasis should be on how are we who are here, the community of Christ. And then of course, how does our missional life flow from that community? And, and it's not that Donald McGavern is not quite in orders. Uh, even my own father-in-law who eventually uh, Mark Maxey, he, he had an interesting relationship with Donald McGavern, who came to Japan. And at first, he was quite taken with him. He thought, well, this guy, you know, has a lot of good ideas. That, and so it's not to in, in, in any way be dismissive. But what he came quickly to recognize was that uh, if you really carried out what Donald McGavern was doing, uh, that it was going to change up. And so he became one of the most outspoken critics of, uh, you know, McGavern and of the whole church growth movement. 
but of course he was a lonely missionary in in Japan. And <laughs> I, I don't, he was an outspoken critic of expediency for expediency's sake. In any case, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, in that sense, you know, I, I, talking about the three streams of the movement, this is the part of the foundationalist restorationists, or what I would call the reactionaries, that originally, I think. In other words, did is there are they giving voice to legitimate concerns? And I'd have to say, yeah, that the whole you know infatuation with the the church growth movement, with the mission strategy of Donald McGavern, of the business kind of, I mean, I think that's what uh, Southeast and Louisville and what it, it's uh, once you understand this is a mechanical thing that you can put into play. Uh, that you too can build a mega church and be a star, you know. Um, that at least the reactionaries were resisting that and have continued to identify that as problematic. Now, what they're up against, of course, is perhaps just the nature of institutions that whenever institutionalized, and this is, the, the, I think, the genius of the Campbells and, the, and still could be the genius of the Restoration Movement, that institutions then come to uh, primarily perpetuate the institution, that everything becomes focused on, you know, that's just the nature of human organization. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, that was the problem with denominations. That's the problem with mission organizations. And that's pro- even the problem with the megachurches, that eventually these things will cave in because their entire strategy is towards their their own survival. And the way they have to survive is continual growth. And so the even though you might think these institutions are you know, swimming in cash, well, actually, they're, they're cash-strapped because the very nature of the thing is that it's a consumeristic uh, uh, idea of exponential growth. You just have to keep growing. Um, but that also then, I think, has infected the Bible colleges. And maybe, maybe the, you know, a Bible college is by its very nature, even you know, R.C. Foster recognized this, that the tendency is always going to be toward the survival of the institution and that becomes the ethic the controlling factor in, or the guiding force mm-hmm. yeah, i guess we could all learn from alexander campbell on that point the, you know the first seminary he opens buffalo seminary he's willing to shut down because it becomes more of a place for general education than seminary education and he was not against general education because later when he starts Bethany College, it's not just a place for religious education, but it's more on a liberal arts model. Uh, Campbell, being classically trained, was fine with learning for learning's sake, but I think he was also passionate that we need to be training ministers to be ministers and that uh, that's our first goal as uh, Christians to pass on our tradition on the faith. Yeah, he was uh, he was well educated enough that any I think he would was sought out by anybody wanting any kind of education. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what he wanted to do was a very particular 
kind of thing. And, of course, maybe that's the genius of it, the last will and testament of the Springfield Press. They uh, create a document and in a, in a, in a, a, a group that is going to uh, kill itself. Yeah, and not because it needed to. It dissolves itself uh, because they come to the position that having the type of institution they had founded was, in their mind, unscriptural. So, I, you know, I, I, I guess the idea, and this is their, we did it, we haven't talked about the third mm-hmm. branch um, of the movement. Uh, you know, if I, so if I had to, to uh, talk about the idea of, of a non-institutional group, maybe the third group, uh, we're calling them the Free Church Catholics, which or is... The- Old conservative disciples, either one. It's a vague notion. Give us a give us a rundown. What does that mean? I think starting out, it is just very vague. Probably more of an idea than an actual identifiable group. But this is what you get out of people like Robert Fife, who throughout his whole life, though he could tell that the independent Christian churches were becoming more defined as their own strain of restoration movement Christianity, Stone Campbell movement Christianity, uh, he's still willing to enter into conversations with the disciples. So he doesn't fully take on the theological liberalism uh, in certain forms of the higher critical method that the disciples had back in the 1920s and 30s, but he's willing to say that uh, we do need to have academic study. We do need to be rigorous. We don't want to be fideists. We don't want to be fundamentalists necessarily. Um, and so he brings some of those things together, and not, not to accuse the original Princeton fundamentalists of uh, being anti-intellectual, because that's certainly not true of people like J. Gresham Machen and others. But uh, Fife is willing to work amongst the groups because he takes – uh, unity to be this key aspect of what it means to be a restoration movement. And it's not a unity that we're trying to institutionalize, but rather it's a unity that is partly a gift given to us, that the church is essentially one, and then we need to promote this unity, and that's where we fit in. I think there's probably people of the disciples of Christ at the same time that aren't too far away from the views of somebody like Robert Fife. So you have uh, neo-Orthodoxy affecting the disciples in the 1940s and 50s, but even more as they continue to diminish in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, I I think that some of their ministers become much more Orthodox than perhaps uh, they would have been considered earlier on. A lot of the issues that were separating the independent Christian churches and the disciples of Christ don't really exist, or at least the initial issues. Now you have the kind of hangover problem of either being a foundationalist restorationist, being more evangelical, or associating with the disciples who had aligned themselves with mainstream Protestant Christianity in the United States. But what you get from that, and I think a position like Robert Fife's, is a recognition that the church isn't simply about doctrine, or a biblicism that you might get in the foundationalists, nor is it just about church growth, which you get in the evangelical streams, or aligning yourself with conservative political ideals, but actually the church has a social ethic as well. And that may be the idea that 
comes through in the free church Catholic or the uh, old conservative disciples, that there is the idea as Christians, we are active as Christians. We just take the uh, Bible as authoritative in the sense that this is how we know who Jesus is. Jesus is Lord. We're going to live out the life of Jesus. And you may have that emphasis in this strain of the independent Christian churches or people that think this way more so than in the neo-evangelicals or evangelicals or the foundationalists. Uh, And, and of course, Bob Fife is a kind of appealing character. Um, Tell us a little bit about his his story. He is a chaplain in World War II, and at this point he is a committed pacifist, and that's why he joins the Army as a chaplain rather than as a combatant. He, however, is one of the members of a unit that liberate Dachau, one of the concentration camps, and it affects him greatly. And so from that point on, he takes more of a stance akin to Reinhold Niebuhr's on pacifism. Yeah, perhaps we should always promote peace as Christians, but there are these certain instances that he thought, based on his personal experience, were just too much for a pacifism to hold true. Now, personally, I don't agree with that, but what you do still have in somebody like Robert Fife is a commitment to ideals of pacifism, uh, unity in the sense of a true open communion, not simply ecumenicism or numerical growth, uh, but just trying to work with other Christian groups and say we can work together, and an emphasis on social justice. And that's what you, you know, as you're describing this, it, it, it's, you know, when I think of the three streams, I think of three personality types. <laughs> and I'm sure this isn't fair, but it, it may be a way of, uh, uh, of getting at then the differences. And that is that in the, you know, the foundationalist restorationists, or what I'm calling the reactionaries, uh, that they're always pictured as very combative. Uh, You think of key characters uh, like R.C. Foster uh, or like uh, the Kayamichi Clinic and uh, who uh, who, uh, was it, A.B. McReynolds at uh, at Mm -hmm. Kayamichi Clinic uh, or the Atumwa group up in uh, Oregon, right? Iowa. Iowa. Well, they're from. Well, they're Oregon. in Oregon too. Yeah, that's yeah. right. They're and and so, uh, and I, you know, the the idea is that there are people that are kind of fiery uh, warriors for the gospel. Uh, a lot, you know. Obviously, you couldn't accuse someone like R.C. Foster of lacking gravitas or intellect. Uh, but of course, this uh, unfortunately, I'm afraid that uh, he gave, he spawned a kind of branch of the movement uh, that did not live up to his finer ideals. Uh, that the the Bible colleges, many of the Bible colleges, you know, the one here in Moberly that uh, I was recently fired from, and uh, Ozark. And, uh, you know, that, that they've modeled themselves, uh, Seth Wilson, uh, Lloyd Pelfrey, uh, Gareth Reese, they were students of uh, R.C. Foster. And so the, the curriculum and what they're doing or were doing uh, in these colleges was, was a 
fosters direct encounter, uh, you know, with and combating uh, theological liberalism, higher criticism. But there was with this then, uh, uh, and I think you get this in the uh, Bible colleges, that, you know, Seth Wilson was always anti-theological. And so Ozark, interestingly, here you would probably have associated a school like that with the foundationalist restorationist. But I bet if you just started counting uh, people who have bought into more of an evangelical church growth understanding and preachers that have then subsequently been associated with the megachurches, uh, I'm guessing that Ozark would would uh, be key in that. And so what I'm describing is there there's a kind of failure of intellect in this branch of the movement. And I'm saying this even as I'm well aware. My, I, my home church in, was in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, my preacher, that was Joe Carson Smith, who was a superb, I mean, he, he was a man with Ph.D., and practically two PhDs, so, uh, and, and was certainly uh, somebody very much intellectually informed. But unfortunately, and very much, by the way, uh, associated with the foundationalist restorationist. But I, I think that he was unusual in that, uh, that there has been a kind of anti-intellectualism uh, in, in this side of the movement. Um, and that anti-intellectualism then, unfortunately, has given way to the, what, you know, in these three streams, the neo-restorationists or the evangelicals, uh, the, especially in our institutions, if people are uninformed, and that's by, by its very, very nature. You know, the Restoration Association is all, is all about history and, and understanding that history. But that is not necessarily carried today in, in uh, the Bible colleges. And so the pragmatism of the, uh, you know, the rest of the evangelicals has kind of carried the day. Even at a little, I think that uh, uh, Central Christian College here, if it had historically, you know, the Restoration Herald, I think you said just the last, uh, you know, issue is still trumpeting, saying, oh, here's our last Bible college. I think that they're missing the fact, well, actually, uh, the old founders were fired many years ago. They're still there part-time. <clears throat> None of them are in control in terms of uh, philosophy or understanding. And so you have two groups that have kind of come in here. And I'm using this as a kind of microcosm of, of the movement. Uh, you've got, you've still kind of got the anti-intellectual group, but they're not well informed enough. If you would, I, and I've done this, you know, you say the name Donald McGavern, who knows who that is? They have no notion, you know, the, the people, even the people in the missions. Uh, department certainly not you know the, in the administration they seem to be completely uninformed they still know they're reactionary but they're no longer clear what they're reactionary against mm -hmm. and but then 
it's that's not really who's carrying the day. It's the infatuation with the megachurches. And so they too then, like many of the schools, have tried to form relationships uh, with uh, various megachurches or near megachurches and send you know, students to those churches to learn church growth method without any clear notion of, of what that might mean. And so I think it's a kind of illustration of what's happening, kind of the implosion uh, that the foundationalist restorationists just never had the, uh, the, the means intellectually or institutionally uh, to continue on. And so the, the neo-restorationists or the evangelicals, uh, in a sense then, uh, the two streams feed into one another because it's not, uh, you know, the, obviously if you're involved in church growth, um, life of the mind is not a prime, mm-hmm. prime concern. So uh, in, in that sense, I think that it would be hard today to distinguish, uh, you know, the unique characteristics of many of the independent churches from any evangelical mm-hmm. church. And, I mean, almost obviously it may not even need to be stated once you've said the evangelical strain of the independent Christian churches has more mega churches than any other denomination in the United States, they obviously have the biggest microphone. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that institutionally, you know, that's, uh, uh, and you, you don't, you don't promote that through scholarship. You mm-hmm. promote that through technique, uh, through a kind of pragmatism. Um, so that, you know, uh, I, I've been in a kind of strange position my whole life <laughs> that as I finish a Ph.D. in England uh, at a school, you know, uh, the, the center of radical orthodoxy, uh, I'm fired from a uh, you know, a school that has been a kind of located with the reactionaries. But the question is why, you know, uh, and I'm just posing this, that it is, first of all, pure pragmatics, uh, that uh, they're, they're just the, the implosion or the, the difficulty financially with the institutions, as are various, you know, how many Bible colleges have closed. Uh, the abandonment of any kind of, I, and I am, by the way, one of uh, some 15 to 20 people. There's been over 20 people fired from this institution. Uh, there are no more PhDs. There are people that have the, you know, the, the uh, I think there's one or two people that had a, a doctorate from Lincoln. But even they then are in the administration. And so what you're describing is an anti-intellectualism fused with a pragmatism that then is focused no longer on any kind of biblical scholarship, uh, but rather on uh, technique, on church growth, uh, spiritual formation, uh, that uh, athletics, and of course that's the kind of the model. Um, and then a kind of 
uninformed, you know, there's just a loss except for in the, the founders of the school who are still there part-time. But, of course, they, their voice has been completely silenced. And so to my mind, if you were counting on any institution to support the reactionaries, I think they're all gone uh, in terms of Bible college. Uh, the, certainly the Restoration Herald and the Restoration Association is still there. Uh, but as the various Bible colleges have either closed or caved into pragmatism, uh, church growth has won the day. Uh, and with that, then, I'm afraid uh, the any kind of serious groundedness in biblical scholarship. Now, tell me I'm wrong, John. Surely in there. <laughs> I wish I could. Yeah. Uh, what, what about the state of, I mean, we know what the, the evangelicals, uh, but is there, uh, is there anything distinctively restorationist in that branch of the movement? I think there is, but... Yeah, restorationist, maybe in the sense that uh, you still have sort of an emphasis on baptism, on communion. I'm not for sure that any of us know, without doing a bit of study first, which ideas in the beginning of the Stone-Campbell movement are ideas worth bringing forward to today. And so when you don't address that question, what are you left with? Well, I guess you're left with, we sort of do church this way, but we don't have any real respect for tradition after you've taken up a pragmatic ideal of doing church. And so you can really insert whatever works, hence the church growth, the mega churches and so on. So that, uh, and, and maybe we've, we've not gone deep enough into this history. Of course, this is not unique to Christian churches, or, but, but just you, it is kind of the American situation that with the turn from a European understanding of, of uh, Christianity, more attuned to and appreciative of tradition, that what happens then in, on the American frontier is uh, a turn to primitivism, the notion that, you know, just I can in some way uh, have a direct uh, communion through the Holy Spirit uh, with God. You know, the Cane Ridge revival is not yet Pentecostalism, but it's you know the Pentecost. The, <laughs> Maybe more charismatic yeah. than Pentecostalism. <laughs> Azusa Street is not very far from Cane Ridge, um, and and then with the primitivism, the the Scottish common sense realism. That's not just Campbell's problem. Or, or orientation. That's sort of that's the American orientation. So we're still living, I think, with the results of that that history, uh, either for good or ill. And so, what was there? Or what is there? I mean, I, I'm not being dismissive of of the movement. I think there that the restoration movement. If you is it still viable? Um, well, the idea of uh, uh, well, let me ask you before uh, I'm blabbering on here. 
<laughs> what would you say then in the restoration movement is is a viable thing that we want to bring forward? Uh, I would probably note a couple of things. One, that the Bible is important for preaching. So regardless of whether you want to do a higher criticism or a lower criticism or you refuse to do any type of criticism of the Bible, however that works out through academic scholarship or where uh, people might locate themselves, the Bible has always been upheld as um, a book that is preached through such that it actually is going to affect us. It has a direct implication on how we live. And sure, you might say, well, that's in every movement, but I'm not for sure that a lot of preachers know why they preach or what the point of a sermon is. So I think that has been carried through in uh, maybe all three strains of the larger restoration movement, meaning churches of Christ, independent Christian churches, and the disciples of Christ as well. Uh, such that even at the end of this past century, with somebody like Fred Craddock, who is a well-known preacher, professor at Emory University, ordained disciples minister, uh, at the end of the day, he's saying the most important thing is that we know Jesus is Lord, and we're going to communicate his life to the audience so that we can live. You get a really uh, large focus on the Bible used for preaching in the Restoration Movement even before you get into the debates on how to read it. The other thing that I would note is the focus on unity. Unity is something that isn't to be achieved, uh, isn't something that necessarily is strived for ecumenically, but unity is given to us, and so we can then participate with Christians and call other uh, followers of Christ Christian, regardless of whatever denomination or faith tradition affiliation they have such that we can even open our communion to them because it's the Lord's table. It's not our table. When you put these two things together, I actually think you have a powerful uh, idea in place for where do we go from there in doing theology or doing ministry or doing missions, whatever that might be uh, in that you can take those two principles and not hold them rigidly as laws, but here is a a place to start and to be able to start conversations with other Christians. Uh, What about just the idea of being able to restore New Testament Christianity? Yeah, I'm not for sure what that means. (laughs) Because, um, well, what is New Testament Christianity? And then you can look to church history and the Apostolic Fathers just read a lot like the New Testament. And then you get the early church theologians and all of the sudden you would have what the early early founders of the restoration movement would call departures from New Testament Christianity. So you have an episcopate, you have uh, more than one mode of baptism. Uh, And maybe this is no fault of their own. The Didache, the teaching of the 12 apostles actually wasn't rediscovered until after Alexander Campbell's lifetime, uh, clearly teaches baptism should be by immersion if necessary, but is also, you know, willing to say, well, if you can't do that, pouring works. Uh, Meaning just that the early church focused on how do we make Christians, how do we train people to follow Christ in a way that was not as rigid as what you would have gotten in the 19th century denominationalism 
and the denominational creeds that he was having to deal with. Mm-hmm. And people just had not gotten past that. Uh, so uh, with the turn of the century, all of that sort of falls apart anyway. I don't know anybody from another denomination that can recite the creeds of their denomination. They may be able to recite the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, but of course all Christians can hold those in common. Yeah. This, uh, yeah, the uh, uh, it, it, being in the middle of this thing, it's, <laughs> in many ways, uh, it, it uh, does not uh, allow for a lot of perspective uh, sometimes uh, in, uh, in seeing what the future of this might be. Of course, my, my own experience has been primarily on the mission field. And uh, if it's against that background that I understand uh, a lot of the deep disdain for a disciples-type missionary organization like the uh, CMF or it, you know its precursor in Japan uh, and in the Philippines. And of course, the Philippines was sort of the key. Uh, place that this all is going to take place. The Japanese came in and they had a unique genius uh, for kind of uh, making people, they'd been practicing this for several hundred years. Uh, But so you have the, uh, in both Philippines and in Japan, all of the uh, churches were forced to unify. And uh, I mean, all the mainline Protestant denominations so but the disciples in both uh, Japan and the Philippines were the most readily uh, (laughs) uh, uh, willing and in fact advocates of that unity so that in, in a very literal sense they were the first and I mean literally what that meant was that images of the emperor would be put up in the churches and they would literally bow to the emperor as part of the worship service. And so that their uh, comity agreements, you know, that, that as it's later known, uh, in fact were a kind of willingness to bow the knee to Baal uh, in a very ready, ready sense. So that uh, even uh, uh, in, in uh, Japan uh, during the persecution, uh, you know, who, who resists? And I think that's always a question you want to ask. Well, it's not, the, it's not the disciples. It's not the theological liberals. So the thing that Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer discover in Germany, I think as a movement we have to recognize that there's a peculiarly despicable aspect uh, to our history uh, and and to that history in in the Philippines and and Japan uh, that has kind of shown up the yellow underside of a particular uh, uh, theological orientation, and so I understand that that is the background to a kind of reactionary understanding. Mm-hmm. So I don't mean to, as I'm critical of the. Group, I, I don't think I'm really a reactionary. I don't, I, I don't think that's a viable position. Uh, 
I, I nonetheless, I understand that as you look at the two groups then that have come to dominate uh, in the restoration movement or in the independent churches, the evangelicals and the uh, conservative disciples, one might understand that there would be a kind of a historical uh, problem with that. And you're supposed to give me the counter voice. Too. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure if I can. Uh, I think that I don't know any Christian group that is um, untarnished by history. And that actually the Civil War poses a lot of the same problems for the Restoration Movement in the United States. Mm-hmm. Such as the churches in the northern United States. I mean, there were really no formal splits at this point, but are willing to ally themselves with the Union forces such that the who will become President Garfield enters into the missionary convention and full military regalia and wants a mm-hmm. motion passed that saying those churches, the disciples of Christ churches, which would have included what will become the independent Christian churches and even churches of Christ at that time, uh, are going to formally put in with the Union federal forces. Mm-hmm. And then you have, uh, you know, the Southern counter to that is just much less organized. <laughs> so I don't know if it would have been any better, mm-hmm. but you do have voices like Tolbert Fanning and David Lipscomb who come to the forefront and one, say that's despicable, but say as Christians, you can't do that anyway. Uh, or as the type of Christian body that we were, you cannot do that. But that as Christians following Christ, you don't ally yourselves with the powers and principalities that go to war against other Christians. And maybe that's, maybe that's the real story here, is the history of pacifism and the Restoration Movement. And what happened? Um uh, <laughs> <laughs> Why is it that, uh, you know, yeah, that by the time you get through the Civil War, uh, by the time you get through World War One, in which, uh, you know, World War One seemed to give rise a bit to pacifism. But not specifically Christian pacifism. Just anti-war, yeah. Uh, and so there was never, it seems, and uh, surely never is too big a word, Within the Christian churches, there has yet to be uh, a theological foundation firm enough uh, to sustain uh, what, in fact, was an, an original genius of the movement, uh, was the kind of the Anabaptist uh, aspect to the Christian churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, that. You know, Bob Fife may be the kind of, you know, you, you, he's this very ironic character, very likable character, um, who can't sustain his own commitment theologically to pacifism because of life experience. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that mean? Does that, you know, it, it seems that in some way, in other words, I, as a pacifist, I, don't, I, don't, I think there's a misunderstanding of the way that we arrive at a, at, at, at a theological understanding. But 
clearly we've not had the the foundation that you have in a in Mennonites and mm. and, and uh, well, and they themselves have sort of lost or are losing their identity of pacifism apart from simply an identity of embracing um, sort of politically liberal social justice issues. Yeah, that John Howard Yoder is sort of the genius of the, uh, the the Mennonites, and John Howard Yoder, who is himself a student of Karl Barth, is reacting reacting to theological liberalism, uh, and is then making to Barth a case uh, for pacifism, and yet Yoder himself seems to make a journey in which he looks very much like a theological liberal at the end of the day, at the, mm. at the end of his. Uh, uh, well, I would, yeah, that's true as well. I simply, I meant as a, as a group, I think a lot of the Mennonite churches in the United States are, uh, they look, they resemble more the peace stance of the mainline Protestant denominations, meaning that they'll seek peace through the channels of government rather than through the channels of being, through the channels of the kingdom of God. Yeah. Well. Have we covered it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we're about to go down a rabbit trail there. At the <laughs> okay. Uh, I think we, we hit the high point that, um, that I don't know what this means. <laughs> Other than, I, I, you know, of the, if I had to save something, uh, from the, the the history here, I think that what we've hit upon is that the recognition then of a, a, a kind of appreciation for an agape uh, fellowship that's a given, that the unity is not one that necessarily we can restore, but it can be preserved. And the way that unity is preserved is then uh, not going to be uh, on the basis of either a kind of rabid, uh, you know, combativeness, mm-hmm. or uh, uh, a willing giving in to the consumerism of the day. Mm-hmm. But in fact, that we, in some way, need to be marked out then as a distinctive people. And that, of course, in the end, I think that's what a Donald McGavern we lose that uh, uh, that the churches that have gone with a Donald McGavern kind mm-hmm. of philosophy. Uh, it's, a, it's a uniquely uh, American kind of consumerist Christianity, and I'm using, I should put the Christianity part in quotes, because mm-hmm. I'm not sure what's left at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, as Harawas says, uh, American capitalism has instituted greed <laughs> and consumerism is a moral good so yeah even in the church that's true yeah. Yeah. John thank you so much yeah